Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are continuing our read-through of Mockingjay, and we are looking at chapters 13 and 14. Chris, can you start us off with a recap? I sure can. (laughs) Oh, you can, can you? I can, can. Oh, no. Do the can-can. Yes, I, uh, I was hoping you wouldn't finish that, but you did. We joined Katniss in the medical ward, noting the relatively minor injuries Peta gave her when he choked her. Beatty, Plutarch, and Hamish explained to her and Prim how Peta had been hijacked by the Capitol, using Tracker Jacker Venom to make him think of Katniss as something fear-inducing and monstrous. Katniss spends a few days lethargic and recovering, but eventually finds Gale and Beatty in special weapons. They introduce her to the new trap ideas they've come up with, using Gale's hunting lures and traps as a model, but now focus on killing as many human targets as possible. Boo. Sorry, I gave away that we're not a fan of that. (laughs) Then she returns to the hospital to see a new plan, by having friendly Deli Cartwright from District 12 go to speak to Peta. Though he is more lucid than when he was with Katniss, Peta turns the conversation to Katniss, whom he shouts out as a capital mutt and a killer. Seeing Peta as a lost cause, Katniss asks to leave District 13 and agrees to go to the final district battlefront in two. Gale joins her as part of the Brain Trust to plan two's defeat. In Katniss's loneliness and grief, they kiss. Boo! (laughs) (laughs) Giving out all the spoilers! (laughs) But Gale pulls away because it's not real. They talk about their feelings, and when Gale realized he first had feelings for Katniss. At the strategy meeting the next day, Gale suggests a plan to trap all of the enemies in the nut, the capital's mountain fortress in two, through avalanches with his intent to kill all of those inside. Why don't we get into our conversation? So what are your striking moments from this read-through? One moment that really stood out to me was when Plutarch notes that he's bringing together mental health and military experts for Peter's (laughs) rehabilitation. I wrote that down too. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yay, military experts. It's a really telling moment because Mm -hmm. it shows the extent to which District 13 is a military society, as we've discussed in the past, and how PETA is viewed as a military asset, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Or a military threat. Exactly. And so, sure, there's mental health advisors who are there to talk about what could or could not happen, but the military experts, I think, are the ones who who are really coming up with, okay, these are our plans for PETA depending on how he is over over time mm-hmm. and the fact that Plutarch is clearly fine with this shows also the extent to which he has kind of ingrained himself into District 13's culture where he is accepting of the fact that yeah it's gonna be mental health experts and our military advisors and he sees everything in such a, a cheery light, uh, <laughs> an optimistic light that I think that he has shown that he's just not very critical of the systems that he's a part of. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting because I was kind of coming at it from a different point of view where I was thinking of like, maybe military experts are here because of all entities in a society it would be the military that would do something like hijacking. Mm. As we know, in our own society, the military personnel are going to be the people who are, you know, at Guantanamo Bay and, you know, things like that to do torturing. Like, it's, it's going to be through the government that things like this are done. That's such a good point. Because, yeah, in our society, the majority of funding for new treatments for PTSD and things like that come from the military. Mm. In part because they, they started getting... They give the people PTSD? Yeah, I mean, entirely because they give the people yeah. PTSD. <laughs> yeah. But in part because they get bad press for mm-hmm. the PTSD that's, you know, caused so, so so many issues with veterans and things like that. But also in part because veterans are likely to re-enlist and they can't do that if they are suffering from PTSD and to an extent that they uh, are unable to pass mental health screenings and things like that. So this is a a huge source of research and resources that's going in because yeah, there are military aims regarding that. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, I mean, has District 13 dabbled in anything? Maybe not this process, but other processes, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's not like we see special weapons as a (laughs) completely pacifistic and, (laughs) you know, ethical idea of warfare. (laughs) Well, and they have this observation room. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what is this used for? Because for me, it would make me think of interrogation, Mm -hmm. right? But, yeah, if it's for a scientific purpose, are you experimenting on people? You know, like, what is happening that this room was made? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Side eye (laughs) at District 13. (laughs) That one note that I don't think I ever really noticed before really became illustrative to me of of a lot of what's happening here, which is one thing that Collins does so well, mm-hmm. is just putting in those tiny little details that is amazing character development, amazing world building, and highlights so many of those touch points that we highlight as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's why she's like such a brilliant author, because it just one sentence in this entire trilogy and we could have if we wanted to an entire episode just on that one sentence and what it could mean for their world as well as examples in ours you know and so it's just like that type of depth and layered societal feel that she can build is just i don't know i haven't really seen that in other books that i've read totally yeah i was also thinking though about how prim stands up to plutarch Such a great moment. Yeah. And how she not only stands up to Plutarch, but she uses the threat of their mother as kind of ammunition in that standing of her ground and advocating for Katniss, which is, I think, a really, really amazing, amazing moment where she's asking the questions that Katniss literally can't, Mm -hmm. but the important and right questions. And, you know, when I think about the, the medical issues that have happened in my family, like, I definitely know that. It's been great having my mom and and my sister know the right questions to ask, you know, and you have also done that for me specifically. So like, (laughs) you know, having someone who understands those things, I think is, is really, really great. But I I was also wondering about the threat of their mom. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder, like, are there parental rights in District 13 that like Plutarch get in trouble for not abiding? Because we haven't seen, I mean, I'm sure that her mom could be a presence, uh, but we haven't seen that, and we certainly haven't seen Plutarch engage with her mom being a kind of frightening presence. And so I'm wondering if if Prim is kind of alluding to a wider idea of, if my mom comes in here and finds out that you haven't been treating Katniss and her family well when we're both children, that could come with consequences. So yeah, just, it was an interesting moment. Yeah, I mean, I would not think about parental rights being a thing in District 13. I mean, maybe to some degree, a greater degree than in the districts. Mm. But I wonder if more it would be a worry if the mom could convince Katniss not to be the Mockingjay anymore. Mm. And that that would be a risk. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense too. But yeah, it was just, it's such an annoying, like, it's such a great scene, but it's such an annoying premise. It's just these three men walk into the room and are going to have the only person who can speak currently leave so that they're just going to deliver really terrible news to Katniss Mm -hmm. and she literally can't say anything. I'm just like, how does anybody think this is okay? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, And I love that she... (laughs) I love how dismissive premise of Plutarch. <laughs> that she's just like, she wouldn't think much of a game maker. She just calls him a game maker, which is just like this beautiful shaming. No, this is what you are to us. Yeah. Like, I'm not seeing you as this rebel leader. I'm seeing you as still using my sister. Yeah. Sure, it's for a better cause, but we don't trust you mm-hmm. and you're always going to be a game maker to us. Yeah, this is, it's just a really great scene. Talking last week about Hamish being at his best, this is Prim at her best. Definitely. My last brief point was just when Katniss responds to Deli uh, about Deli saying that 
everyone in District 13 is so nice. And Katniss just says, <laughs> they've made an effort to make us feel welcome. As like, that's a fair thing that I can say that I also believe. Which is an amazing Katniss moment. But it's also something that like I can kind of resonate with. Because generally, I try to avoid conflict. So I don't <laughs> love just outright disagreeing with people. But more in particularly, as a teacher, I feel like I have to often, like, if a student says something that I don't personally agree with, but is showing good historical thinking or critical thinking skills or kind of moving the conversation in a good direction, you know, I want to be affirming even if I'm not in agreement with that. And so, like, having to navigate, okay, how do I phrase this in a way that doesn't communicate to the class, yes, they're right about all of this, <laughs> but does affirm the things that I do want to point out about it, you know, is something that, that kind of comes up a lot. So, yeah, it was just a fun, fun little moment where I was like, I get you here, Katniss. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you took most of mine. Oh, but sorry. No, and it's totally fine. But another thing I was thinking about is the fact that Katniss hasn't seen Delhi yet. Mm. And how, in, in the aftermath of 90% of District 12 being destroyed... She really hasn't interacted with people from District 12 that much. And I just, I don't know if that's purposeful on Katniss's part, that she finds it really difficult to do. And she feels responsible in some ways, mm. even though she's not. And if if the people from District 12 don't want to, you know, just go over to her while she's having lunch, you know, or anything like that. So yeah. Yeah. just that distance between... Katniss and the other people from District 12 is is very interesting to me. It is. I think there's definitely some guilt involved with that. Not that she really engaged with a lot of people anyway. But I think there's that exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's also the fact that, as she mentions when Deli is talking her up, like, no, I was just unfriendly to people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's still Katniss. <laughs> totally. But I could imagine that some of the other people in District 12 might have been more friendly to her, mm. you know? And especially if there are some people from the Hob or things like yeah. that who she interacted with on a more regular basis. Totally, yeah. But why don't we move into our next section, which is From Another Point of View. This is when we are looking at things that are happening in these chapters from a point of view other than Katniss's. Who do you have? Yeah, I wanted to think a little bit more about Prim's perspective. Mm. Because I was kind of thinking about how Prim, she is obviously very knowledgeable. Generally, she's very experienced in health crisis moments with helping her mom out for years back in District 12. But I was wondering if maybe there's also a bit of her, now that she is in these kinds of more formalized education, training to be a medic or a doctor, and like wanting to utilize that information. It reminded me of when I was in college and I first started learning what I found very profound and kind of paradigm shifting history and and ideas. Um, Or when I really started getting involved in social justice movements. I was learning so much and I found felt like I wanted to utilize all of that knowledge. I, I really felt like there had to be purpose to that learning. And I think that's something that a lot of people go through when they're young and, and kind of starting to engage with their passions uh, a little bit more. And so I was wondering if there was a bit of that tied in with her wanting to advocate for her sister and be there for her and all of that. But also this like, no, I'm learning all about these kinds of things and like we need to actually engage with these wider issues. Mm, mm -hmm. But I'm also curious about her views on PETA and Gail, actually, because she clearly has spent a lot of time with PETA more recently. In the year between the 74th and 75th games, PETA seemed like he was around more often and kind of part of their family in a way. But before that, PETA wasn't a part of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so she wouldn't have really known who he was. And... I don't expect that Katniss and Prim have had lots of conversations about Katniss's feelings towards <laughs> these people. So I, I was kind of thinking about, you know, Prim clearly has the idea that at least Peta's love for Katniss is really important to their relationship. And that Peta is really important to Katniss in some way. Yeah, she explicitly says, does this mean Peta doesn't remember that he loves Katniss? 
And so she clearly believes that very clearly. She's able to see that very clearly. And she understands that him losing that would be hard for Katniss. On the other hand, she's known Gale for most of her life. And he's been a kind of constant presence uh, and a constant partner for Katniss. She has ties with his family and things like that. So I just was trying to imagine how Prim is approaching these situations because she is doing whatever she can to help bring the PETA who loves Katniss back for Katniss's sake. Well, and for his sake. And for his sake, of course, yeah. She's like, you can't just, like, leave him in some room to suffer by himself. True, yeah. And and she's mature enough to understand, you know, what's going on, to, to see things for what they are, as Katniss points out. But I wonder if she also ever kind of got caught up in the romance of Peeta and Katniss. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that she did get caught up at least a bit in um, thinking of Katniss's volunteering for her as a kind of, not romantic in like a romantic love, but romantic in the kind of literary sense, kind of huge gesture. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I wonder if there is anything about as Katniss is fighting for her life on Prim's behalf with Peta as a loving ally. like Who's fighting for Katniss. Exactly. You know, you know? how much she kind of does romanticize that relationship herself i mean we know that in catching fire she was excited and didn't want katniss to try on the wedding dresses until she got home from school yeah yeah so i guess you know especially comparing this to our conversation about phoenix point of view in the looking at those relationships Mm -hmm. i think prims is a really interesting one here because you would think that Prim would be Team Gale, like the person <laughs> who Katniss grew up with. But, I mean, maybe here she's showing that she is more, you know, Team Peter at least understands the importance of Peter and not as a threat to Gale or to what they grew up with. So yeah, I just, I think I, other times I read through the, these chapters, I don't know how much I spent thinking about Prim, but... I was really glad to be able to to understand her more and to respect her more through these chapters and these close readings. Mm. Yeah, and I think that probably just her having lived her entire life with Katniss, there's things that she can probably just pick up on mm. and have insights into how Katniss really feels, even sometimes when she doesn't say things. Yeah, maybe drawing some conclusions there yeah yeah knowing how katniss physically shows how important their father's jacket is to her and then how maybe she treats Peter's pearl or other things that he gave her in a similar way like yeah those maybe small little things that katniss doesn't even think about but prim is able to intuit and maybe she also senses some of the tension between her and gail Mm. as they're disagreeing a lot more recently yeah yeah and seeing like every time there's a PETA interview and then how that affects Katniss's mental Mm. health after that and stuff so yeah I mean I think she's probably pretty observant Mm -hmm. and as everyone says everyone knows before Katniss does how she feels (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 I really like how Prim has become a central character in this book mm-hmm. for my reading uh, in a way that I never really saw her before. Totally, yeah. But what about you? What perspective did you want to talk about? I'm just so impressed with Delhi Cartwright. Mm. And I was really thinking about her and what she's going through. She's lost so much. She's lost her parents, her friends teachers her home you know everything her youth you know but now having to be a parent in a way yeah to her younger brother and like now she finally gets to see someone who's possibly her only surviving friend Mm. from district 12 and she can't talk with him openly Mm. she can't grieve with him over what they've lost 
I mean, they've both lost their parents. Things that they could connect on, things that they could understand each other on, and you've known each other since the earliest childhood memories. Mm. And she has to sidestep these incredibly important and like the most painful experience probably in her entire existence and be cheerful in this interaction and i think you you definitely see the care that she has for him and when she breaks out into a smile i think that is genuine i think mm. she is happy to see him especially i mean she's also seen these interviews and things like she was also probably really worried about Peta and what they were doing to him and what would happen to him after the war. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure she's relieved, but it's also not her friend Peta. And yet she still, it seems like she still wants to interact with him as authentically as she can because she's not lying to him or completely covering things up like she tries to figure out a way to answer his questions honestly and then like not lingering on what's happening but she's not just yeah you know your parents couldn't make it you know something that's like not like oh they're alive but like Mm -hmm. you know just the types of things that are dishonest but not explicit lies you know um but she doesn't do any of that and so i just was really appreciating her walking that line and struggling with interacting and like putting what Peta needs above what she needs which is you know again so sad because she's lost so much as well yeah and being what 17 18 years old probably 19 at the most yeah i think she's just really impressive and you can see why nobody could say anything bad about deli Carr, right yeah yeah (laughs) yeah she is really amazing in this scene And, and especially considering she hasn't had any of the experience or the coaching that katniss has Mm -hmm. you know she hasn't had to think about minding what she says and how she says it in these life or death ways that we've been following for two and a half books now and yet she's able to jump in and yeah juggle all these different elements but still be there for Peta in such a, a real powerful way yeah absolutely and it shows too that she was there at the beginning of his engagement with art yeah you know, and, and things and so i also am just very curious what her views were as she was watching all of these things mm. like i could imagine that Peta showed her his art therapy that he did for his his talent on the victory tour and you know she used to joke that he was her brother so i imagine that they were quite close oh yeah now i want to read fan fiction about them (laughs) like in the beginning of catching fire when katniss and Peta aren't talking and like Peta goes and talks with deli instead oh but talking about fan fiction another point i have to bring up is that she says Katniss is, was always so amazing. I never dreamed she would notice me. Oh, <laughs> that was quite a quite a way to phrase that, Deli. It was. <laughs> I'm just like Katniss attracts all the lesbians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she just does. Madge now, Deli. I think if Johanna Mason didn't resent her so much, she would be on board too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And now, like you said, Katniss would be the last to know. Exactly. So it makes sense that narr- her narration would just fly right past that. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, that's generous. Exactly. Like, <laughs> instead of, hmm, what is this? <laughs> Why did she want me to notice her so much? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so then 
and in my mind I'm just like how cute would it have been if it's like these two besties Deli and Pita both had a crush on Katniss and like talked to each other and like joked about it with each other because none of them ever thought that they would talk to her and like you know at during school lunch they would look over at her and like groan about the situation <laughs> and Katniss is just eating by herself you know it just oh it, God. it would be great I mean kind of sad because I feel like Katniss reads pretty straight so sad for Deli but if they both thought that she was kind of unreachable, like this unreachable crush, it could have been a very cute relationship for them. Yeah. Oh my god. Now I'm just thinking of... <laughs> Where are the fanfic writers? <laughs> no, I want a full spin-off show, uh, like they did with Attack on Titan. So okay. Attack on Titan is this pretty violent, gruesome, intense anime about a bunch of high school-aged kids needing to become soldiers to fight these giant human-eating monsters. And then it got really popular, and so the creators decided to create a second anime show which featured chibi versions of the entire <laughs> cast going to, like, high school together and having to, like, run away from the giants who steal lunches. <laughs> but most of it's just, like, exaggerated comedic versions of these really serious characters having to go to high school together. And that's what I want to see for the Hunger Games. I want <laughs> cute, exaggerated versions of all these characters just being able to be friends together <laughs> and the see the social dynamics. Drama. Exactly. <laughs> Not the death arena. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They call like sports day the Hunger Games. <laughs> you know? And so like there's all these allusions to what actually happens, but we mostly get to see yeah, these social dynamics and drama and a comedy version of it. I want this so bad. <laughs> no, so what The Hunger Games in this scenario actually is, it's a day of competitions and the winning team gets to pick the new Japanese vending machine that gets installed there at their <laughs> school. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Oh, Why man. are we not talented? Why can't we do Why can't this? we just make this? Talented or rich. Either way, we can make this happen. If there's one thing that we need to ask of Suzanne Collins, this is it. <laughs> I mean, first, first things first. Be our friend. No, I'm Come putting this above podcast. that. I will self-sacrifice. Okay. <laughs> but if she's our friend, then we can convince you to do a lot That's of things. True. That's true. Including this. <laughs> Oh, dear. Yes. Okay, so my second point of view is continuing with the fan fiction. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this is just where I've gone this episode. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> After the emotional episode with Fennec, now I'm just going into fan fiction. <laughs> Our first episode in forever where we're doing two chapters and then we just spend the whole time talking about not, not even things in the book. <laughs> not the two chapters. A potential 2,400 exactly. other chapters. Yes, yes, yes. But... So who's your other perspective? So this is going into Songbirds and Snakes spoilers. So if you have not finished that book, you're going to want to skip ahead. Two minutes. If things had turned out differently... And Snow hadn't been a little evil gremlin, and Sejanus was not executed. Mm. If eventually he could have made his way back to District 2, because he didn't want to go to the Capitol, mm. right? He didn't think of the Capitol as his home. He thought of District 2 as his home. You know, maybe he would go by a different name, kind of hide his identity as yeah. best he could, wait a few years before making it back there, and obviously finding a wonderful husband. Mm -hmm. And even if they can't legally get married in the districts of Penham, which is probably true, mm -hmm. you know. So now he's this 83-year-old man who is, like, war still working hard with the rebels of District 2. <laughs> and I was just, like, imagining... That he and his husband are like the first home that Katniss goes and stays in at District 2 because he's just so Aww. excited to host her because he's so impressed with how she's 
brought down the capital, which is what he's wanted to do for so long. Yeah. Right? Oh, Wouldn't I that like just that. be the best? Yeah. He would be one of the advisors at the strategy meeting, and he'd be the first to say, this is Inethical. immoral. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know, right? Wouldn't that just be the best? That would be nice, yeah. In a different, in a parallel universe, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you have to write this fanfic. <laughs> well, it was just like, you know, as we're there and they're talking mm-hmm. about District 2, I'm like, this was his home. Mm. And he had to, as a, as a really young boy, watch the reapings at this town square and things like that, you know? And mm-hmm. just like kind of envisioning him living in this space and then what would it mean for him to be there now yeah yeah that's interesting but shall we get back into actually what these chapters are about sure (laughs) well why don't we go into our touch points this is where we are looking at things that are happening in these chapters and seeing some parallels to things that are happening in our world or have happened in our world So we have to touch on Gail's use of the same rule book as Snow (laughs) in his planning new weapons and tools and strategies of war in Special Weapons with Beatty. Yeah, this goes into what can be fraught discussions over the use of immoral tactics when you are resisting an oppressive regime. Mm-hmm. Because resisting an oppressive regime, I'm almost always on board with. Sounds good. But terrorism to resist an oppressive regime is then targeting innocence. It is not looking at things strategically in a military way. It's looking at things in a much more holistic way of of targeting an entire society and one of the things that we've talked a lot about is the extent to which all capital citizens are culpable but also the experiences of what it might be like for them and the attempt to humanize them um, while still holding them responsible so yeah i think that this is as the series starts turning to being about the war more generally and less about Katniss's participation in the Hunger Games, I think it's a really great move to have one of the central conflicts be, okay, so if you're in a war, what type of war are you going to fight? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Far, far too often it's target civilians to make governments surrender Mm -hmm. instead of if you're going to attack attack only military targets yeah and yeah people get so mad about terrorism that happens but it's like oh yeah we just killed random bystanders or someone we thought maybe could have a connection with this other person like they're just going to the market in yemen and be a drone just kill them mm-hmm. you know that is also terrorizing yep. there's no proof there's no trial there's nothing and we just don't see it because it's not happening in our country yeah 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 and and that's the thing is in this metaphor we are the capital we're the ones setting the rule book <laughs> that's right. already cruel and and terrible Um, Terrorism wasn't happening like this until people were trying to throw off imperialism. Exactly. And this is just a continuation of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our our current modern day terrorism, when we think of it coming from, you know, uh, Islamic extremists, which, again, is a very, 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 very small percentage of anyone who is Muslim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... If you you look at the reasons, you look at Osama bin Laden's fatwa of, like, why they're doing these things, I do not agree with the conclusion, which right. is, so you should kill Americans. <laughs> Bad. But the things that he is calling the U.S. out for, mm-hmm. absolutely, we did those things. We're terrible. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a continuation of that something that started a long time ago. Exactly. As as these colonizers have gone in and extracted resources, killed people, cultural genocide, all of these things. Yeah. Yeah, and the many, many, many Muslims and other people who have used the peaceable solutions of protest and writing about this immorality of colonialism and neocolonialism, unfortunately have not stopped it. And so it makes sense why that, yeah, that small minority would, would go there. So yeah, it's it's interesting seeing Gail and B here because they are doing things that I find immoral and reprehensible, mm-hmm. but they're doing so in the ultimate cause of trying to, yeah, overthrow an oppressor. Yeah. I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm going to get wiretapped again. (laughs) (laughs) I was when I came back from the Middle East. That doesn't surprise me. For quite a while. Every time I picked up the phone or made a call, I would hear this little click. Free three-way calling. (laughs) Those are the people that I would three-way call with. (laughs) Well, I did want to hit on one other touch point. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of makeup of District 2, the environment that it's within. Because we hear how District 2 was set up as mining, uh, was, their, as, was their main focus until District 13 was independent. And then it became the more military center of the capital because they're able to turn the mountain, which the rebels are calling the nut, into this, you know, new military complex, essentially. It made me think a lot about the history of the American Southwest, mm. which is, has a similar type of history, because after World War II, that area uh, was part of what's known as the Sun Belt, um, and the Sun Belt generally, and especially parts in the Southwest, were able to gain a lot of prominence. Um, they were able to build either small towns or even just these kind of suburban cities because of a number of reasons. One being air conditioning, uh, allowing more people to live and, and work there in a more comfortable way. Cars, making it so that access to these places wasn't limited by rail lines. Um, Which they destroyed (laughs) being able to be built or they even tore out what was here so that people couldn't use them so Mm -hmm. that they would buy cars sorry not your point but (laughs) just had to say really annoyed yeah there was also a rising white middle class and their cultural views of wanting to distance themselves from quote-unquote urban communities Mm. uh you can read the lines of what they meant by urban communities no, I can't. You want to specify? <laughs> yeah, people of color is what oh. they meant. Yeah. Um, but the... Uh, so so already we're seeing this kind of more suburban ideal, people who are able to benefit from certain government programs and, and gain a, a kind of new middle-class status. But the last bit is the one that really connects with District 2, and that is the massive military contracts that came in with these southwestern cities. Mm-hmm. This is due in part because of the rise of nuclear weapons, where the government was like, we can't have all of our military installations in the middle of cities, because then if we get hit by a nuclear bomb, it's going to kill both our military installations and a ton of people. So we have to separate that. But also, it gave them lots of room Just the environment itself was really useful for them because having massive deserts that you could, for one, do your own nuclear testing in, Mm -hmm. and for two, test whatever new aircraft and all sorts of other kinds of things you have, those were created. And so we had these military installations with kind of little suburban cities set up nearby for the people working in those bases and what have you, uh, and their families, as well as other kind of suburban mentalities growing other cities as well. But yeah, it just, it was interesting seeing District 2 as a mirror of this history because, you know, it wasn't a desert, but it was this mountain that allowed them to meet the needs of what the military needed at the time. Instead of being open space, it was enclosed space. But in both cases, we see the military uh, and the militarization of a region lead to a 
increase in economic prosperity for some people because there's so much funds and resources being directed towards the military that that becomes a more lucrative system than other industrial activities. And so, yeah, I thought District 2 was a really fascinating example of something that we definitely have in our own in our own history, too. Mm, yeah. Also, <laughs> how Katniss thought the mountains were originally associated with a minor quarry, I'm like, originally? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great point, yeah. Right? History only starts when white people come on the scene mm-hmm. and start ruining things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's what the capital is doing here too. They're writing their own history, and that history starts at the capital's history, not mm-hmm. at what was going on beforehand. And Katniss only knowing that society—that uh, yeah. is what's or, what she thinks of as original, but there's no understanding of what it meant before that. Ooh, yeah. great point. Uh-huh. Thank you. Did you have other touch points you want to hit on? Oh, of course. Who do you think I am? (laughs) Firstly, gross men being physically overwhelming with Katniss when she did not ask for it. Just leave her alone. Yes. Like, Gail kissing her right after she was saying that I can't just let Peter go. And, like, clearly she's not doing okay Mm -hmm. one of the words they used you know once she like opened her eyes was bewildered it's like that's not a good feeling yeah and then he's just like it doesn't count as if like she's not into it and that's the problem like for him because like it doesn't count for what the feelings that he wants to feel rather than it's not right for where she's at Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm and when she agrees with what he said, he's exasperated. Right. It's like, <laughs> I'm yeah. exasperated with you, Gail. <laughs> this is not a great Gail chapter. <laughs> <laughs> and then also the the memory back to Darius. Mm. Also like, oh, if you give me one of these, I'll give you a kiss. It's just like, at the time she was probably 15, 16. Like, it's just inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and... Ugh. cis men just feel like they can do this whenever they want doing it Ugh. and then it's like you have versus Peta, who not that he does everything right in terms of gender and things like that but he told her in the arena remember we're madly in love you can kiss me anytime you like like mm-hmm. he put it in her court so that she could act on it if she wanted to and then versus if you go to Madge and Deli who are just being nice and supportive <laughs> not even bringing up kissing at all as much as we now know they clearly want to yes exactly right but there's no never they never are like I had to do that at least once yeah you didn't have to do anything Gail yeah very good point Hashtag lesbians for the win. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing I was thinking a lot about in District 2, as I've done for other districts when we meet characters from those districts, is looking at our current situation and where we're getting our commodities and things like that. Mm. So I was thinking a lot about mineral extraction, because this Mm. is what they were doing prior to being this military stronghold. And And continue to do, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, to build weapons and stuff, you need minerals. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I was thinking a lot about just, I mean, (laughs) imperialism again and how terrible all of these Western countries were to, well, white countries, really, Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world just going in taking whatever resources they wanted or only developing things to those resources even if it was very impractical for the communities that lived there Mm -hmm. even uh in 1917 the uk's imperial war conference decided the imperial mineral resources bureau should collect information on every mineral and metal of economic value for the purposes of imperial defense or industry at least they put imperial writing (laughs) 
they didn't shy away from that word at the time. No. They like to now, but... <laughs> so I was thinking about that a lot of like the toll it takes on the communities and the land for the purpose of war or production. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at the world's leading producer of minerals and that is China. Mm. Uh, they're the leading producer of 44 different minerals, which is far and above any other country in the world. The next closest is the U.S. with the leading producer in 10 different minerals. And China also produces more than 90% of global rare earth elements. And the U.S., of, of the 18 minerals that we are completely reliant on other countries for, China is the top producer of nine of those. Hmm. With China's huge push for mineral production, safety has been really dubious. In 2015, China accounted for 40% of global coal output, but 80% of mining deaths around the world. Mm. They have really actually, luckily, thankfully, uh, improved their safety measures a lot in the past several years. But still, you know, in, in 2020, there were still 573 deaths from mining accidents and obviously more injuries and things like that. And that's not taking into account the toll it takes just environmentally yeah. and with pollution and, and toxicity and things like that uh, that it can have on the population. And so I was actually finding that kind of perfect because when I originally read Songbirds and Snakes at the beginning, I automatically was reading Sejanus as Arab. But as I got to the end of the story, you know, because we had never read it before, I was actually feeling that he actually felt very, to me, East Asian mm. um, because of the conditional status that he had which is something that Asians talk a lot about in the United States, where it's the society around Asian Americans is constantly changing their opinion of Asian Americans depending on what's going on. Mm -hmm. So at first it can be like Chinese Exclusion Act, and then it can be like, oh, you can come in and develop. Oh, you're all rich. Oh, you're the model minority. And then it's like, there's Japanese internment, so you suddenly turn against them. And then it's like, oh, you're such hard workers and it's like so ethical. And then it's COVID comes along. Oh, the Chinese virus, you know, and it's just like this constant people just will suddenly change their opinions of Asian Americans. We'll accept you to these degrees, but then now you're knocked down a few rungs, you know, and so it's just yeah. like this constant. We'll fetishize your women. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this constant, like, fluctuation of where Asian Americans stand in this country. And I think that very much is, you know, with Sejanus in, in that book. Yeah. So I was kind of like, oh, well, this actually works quite well. I mean, obviously, I was thinking of him more as Japanese because he's my favorite and I'm half Japanese. <laughs> and it, I was just, like, kind of seeing him as, like, he could be one of those Japanese Americans that was standing up and like demanding reparations yeah. <laughs> like yes I think that that brings up another interesting point though because you know these are most likely the either the Rocky Mountains or the Sierra Nevada Mountains mm-hmm. they're talking about and those are the mountains that Chinese railroad workers tunneled through to bring the railroad to the west coast to, mm-hmm. you know in the transcontinental rail, uh, railroad uh, and typically they were given the most dangerous jobs especially the one dealing with dynamite. And so, yeah, if if we're talking about both the kind of current global market, but also the history of Asian Americans in the U.S., I think that there's some really fascinating parallels with what District 2 represents. Mm, totally, totally. But I do want to say, not to say that Arab Americans don't have a conditional status. They very much do in, in this country as well, which is... Also, one of the reasons why after 9-11, the Japanese-American community, like, just came around the Arab community saying, 
we will stand with you, we will protect you, we will protest if they're going to try to do to you what they did to us during World War II and things like that. So not, yeah. not to say that, just saying how I've, I'm reading it a little differently, more from my own experiences or understanding. Yeah, that's great. Well, should we go into our wonderments? What are you wondering about? I want to know more about the execution of Portia and Peta's prep team. Mm -hmm. Because I'm wondering what the purpose of that was for the capital. You know, were they involved in the escape? Were they some of Plutarch's inside people? Or were they just accused of being involved and mm -hmm. scapegoated by the capital? You know, was this a kind of way of trying to punish Katniss and Peta? Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious not only what the intent was actually behind it, but also how it was sold to the capital citizens, because this is done after the escape, not more generally because of wider issues. And, and they've already been holding PETA up as this kind of symbol who's calling for ceasefires, and now they're killing his prep team. I just, I really want to know what those murders, those executions meant for the capital, what purpose they played. Hmm. Uh, it's another kind of piece of those world building that I just would love to be explored more. I understand, like, there's so much happening to Katniss right now that... We have to go chapter by chapter most of the time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it makes sense that she has the moment of sympathy and grief, but she has to move on because she's got other things that she's dealing with. But yeah. it's, uh, it's, yeah, just something that really made me wonder more about how the capital is reacting to everything that's happening and whether PETA was meant to be sent to Katniss or not, how Snow and how the capital population are taking the news that PETA has been extracted. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, I would assume that Portia has been imprisoned since the Mockingjay dress transformation mm. because I don't think Snow would ever trust that she wasn't in on knowing about rebellious action. The prep team, who knows, yeah. because if they're anything like Katniss's, no rebellious anything there. So if that's the case, then yeah, I wonder if it would be like one of those, well, we're going to publicize that PETA was broken out so we have to have like a win mm. like even though this is what Snow wants Snow wants him to go back to Katniss her, yeah. her. but it makes it seem like the capital is strong and they're not gonna get away with this you know sort of thing also I could imagine it's a <laughs> terrible but great fear tactic that people in the capital aren't safe. Don't be involved in anything rebellious. If you were thinking about it, if you already are, stop it right now, mm -hmm. you know. But I do wonder because we know that Cinna absolutely blew up with orders and, you know, people wanting to wear his clothes and his styles and everything. Yeah. And I imagine Portia would too because they were designing together mm -hmm. and they had matching outfits. And so for all of these people who have items by Portia, what does that mean to have those in your closet or that to be your favorite dress or, you know, yeah. whatever it is and you see this person executed on screen? Yeah, exactly. And if it's they're executed just because they have a connection to public enemies number one and two. Yeah. What does it mean if you were rooting for Katniss? What if it means that you were sponsoring her and PETA? You know, yeah. like, uh, yeah, these people who were invested in all sorts of different ways in the District 12 team. Yeah, that can be really scary. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really care because... They exploited Finnick, but the people that he shared secrets about, mm. would they be afraid of reprisals from Snow? Just the fact that they were mentioned? He wouldn't necessarily know who said what, but a lot of them kept talking about whispers of Snow poisoning people, you know? Right. So, so many taste testers. Yeah. <laughs> 
hired after that. Rising job security for taste <laughs> testers. <laughs> what are you wondering about? I was kind of wondering, like, we've given Plutarch, rightly so, a lot of flack lately. But I was kind of wondering here why he was involved in Peta's recovery. Mm. Being there to explain the hijacking makes sense because this was something they were doing in the capital. He was probably privy to some of these things as yeah. a gay maker. But when Delhi is there, why is he there watching? Like, doesn't he have more important things to be doing? And so I was kind of like wondering if Prem shamed him by calling him a game maker and saying that he's taken such poor care of Katniss that he's like, well, I'm going to be involved with Peter's recovery. <laughs> you know? Totally, yes. Look, I'm a good guy. <laughs> I'm on your team. I'm team PETA. Not that way, but maybe, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it is really curious how... He seems to have this high position in District 13 in some ways where he's running military operations, but then sometimes he also just seems like he's like Katniss and Peta's keeper. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I think that there could be a really interesting examination of his place within District 13, either from his perspective of him trying to win power you know, in whatever ways he can, or from the perspective of someone like Boggs, who's like, has orders to keep him pacified, keep him busy, <laughs> make him think that he's important, while the real strategizing and everything is happening in other rooms. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe he's also just like a huge micromanager. Mm. <laughs> he just like, needs to be involved in everything. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And the other th one I was thinking about is when the hijacking actually started. Mm. Were they trying to brainwash PETA for their side in general? You know, prior to him warning District 13 and then after he warned them, they're like, well, we can't use him anymore. We're going to twist his memories of Katniss specifically. Mm. Yeah, I just, I just wonder, because it, clearly something was happening to him before, more than other types of torture, because yeah. it seemed like he was really struggling with himself to try to get the information out. But it, it would just seem very odd to me if they were trying to twist his memories of Katniss already, because that means they planned to set him loose on her. And wouldn't they want to still continue to use him for war propaganda? But then also, maybe this is just a bad snow decision like he mm. likes to make, where he's just vengeful and he's so angry at Katniss and he just wants to destroy her love, you yeah. know? And it doesn't matter if they lose this person who could do propaganda. Hmm, yeah. I also wonder if there was any element of it being a response to BD's success in getting into their feeds, where they're realizing that Katniss is, especially now that she's taken on the role of Mockingjay, and they have this new technology, there's such an intense threat there, and the war is turned in a way that maybe this is a desperate gamble for them in some way. But mm -hmm. I also like the Snow's poor choices. <laughs> reading reading yeah. too i know right and i kind of like a little bit of me when Peta was saying these things about katniss she's a liar it's her fault she's done these things you know i was like thinking about is this just what he feels about lisa gray <laughs> <laughs> is this when he's like putting in them right like he would do that talk oh. about a micromanager right oh my god <laughs> is just a little baby toddler <laughs> that likes to throw and break his toys mm -hmm. when things don't go exactly how he wants exactly. so but why don't we go to the final section of this episode which is talking about our intentions so what are you taking away from these chapters of this conversation that you want to apply to your own life so my intention is actually going to be more about the reading to come and how i want to, to think about things because i, I noticed how 
we lose two weeks of Katniss in District 2. And we don't really, we only get a very, very brief overview of what that experience is like for her. And it made me think a lot about how the passage of time is communicated in these books. Because it feels like much of this book has happened within two or three weeks. And then now we have these bigger breaks. And so I want to to pay attention to not only what the passage of time really looks like, but also how Katniss is engaging with that. Because we see, for example, her spending three days lethargic in the hospital. And then we see two weeks where I can imagine, yes, she's doing, you know, whatever she can for the rebellion, but she's also still grieving. And I can imagine those two weeks feeling like they're blending together for her. And so for us to have the narrative present that two weeks very quickly maybe reflects how Katniss is experiencing those two weeks in a way as well. I've noticed Collins do this a few times, and so I just want to pay particular attention to that in the last bit of this book because I think that's a part of the narrative that I have allowed myself to kind of jumble together a lot. Mm. And so, yeah, that's my intention. Yeah, it would be really interesting to think about it in terms of what's important to Katniss. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there is the side bits. What is the author's plot and where does she need to go with the story? But it would be interesting if if there is a reading that makes a lot of sense that would be, yeah, what's important to Katniss. And like this happening to her from PETA is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And being in District 2 is new, it's different, but, like, she's not past that, you know? She's still mourning PETA, she's still processing, and not there to make new friends. Regardless of how charming and amazing Sejanus and his husband are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And how cool Lime seems to be, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm down with Lime. Yeah. What about you? What's your intention? I think my intention is coming from Katniss. Thinking about those words, I didn't want to tell Gail how much more difficult it would be for me to mourn Peta if he was here. Mm. Just the idea of mourning that isn't connected to a death. Mm. I don't... (laughs) Continuation of Brit needs to go back to therapy. (laughs) Like, I don't really give a lot of conscious thought and, like, sitting with a mourning process for things that don't have to do with death. Mm. Um, and I don't even know if when it does have to do with death either. And like when I look back at me with my chronic illnesses, like getting progressively worse, being able to work less and less and things like that, saying goodbye to the dreams of what I wanted to do, you know, for career and things like that. Like I do look back at it and see a morning process, but I wasn't consciously engaged in that and thinking about it in that way Mm. and giving space in that way so yeah just just being more aware of that and thinking hopefully about times where I do need to mourn different things whether that would be you know it's like the day of the supreme court decision to strike down Roe v. Wade like I didn't do anything I did have a mourning day my sister brother-in-law and I just sat around complaining, eating good Thai food, and watching things, you know. So it's like, there were things like that, and, you know, I talked to some friends and processed with them, but it's like one day, over. But, like, that doesn't mean that these big things aren't still there, aren't still weighing on me in certain ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's that. That's great. There's a lot to mourn in this world. That's true. That's very true. You can go back to our touch point section <laughs> in any episode. <laughs> well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? Well, actually, next week we are taking a break from our regular episodes here. And 
on Patreon for our patrons. We are having a special episode, which is our Radaptation or Badaptation movie review of Mockingjay Part 1 because we have hit everything that is covered in that movie in this book so far. So we will be discussing what's great, what, why. Who, what, when, maybe, as well. We'll see. Yeah. If you want to take a listen, make sure that you join us on Patreon. You can for just $1 a month, and you'll also get access to a lot of other things, including our other movie reviews for Thunder Games. That's $12 for a whole year of us. What? That's way less than going to a movie. What a deal. What a steal. A bargain. And then the following week, we'll be back to our normal read-through here, reading chapter 15. Where Katniss inspires everyone. Well, almost everyone. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!